God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Good to see everybody again this morning. It's great to be able to worship together, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. I think what I love most about this church is how it really doesn't matter the form or the style of the music that we sing. We're just about worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know, when I go to pastor's conferences or presbytery events, one of the most often discussed topics is how's music going in your church? Because it seems to be so divisive. And I always just tell them, oh, we don't have any problems at Four Mile because we just use our music and it complements the scripture that we focus on. So it doesn't matter if we sing a hymn or it doesn't matter if we're singing, you know, a top 10 song on Caleb. We're just about worshiping in spirit and truth because we're a church that's all about the fundamentals. And of course, I then go on and tell them all about the fundamentals because you know I like to talk about it all the time. I tell them about our football and how important it is that we're reminded of it. I tell them about how um, each week we always tell the congregation about those three main identities we have, that we are first and foremost very focused on the Great Commission, that we want to go out and make those disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I also tell them that we're a church with flaws, which often shocks them because people don't talk about that, that it is okay at Four Mile Church to not be okay because that's the truth. Every one of us are in process at some level or another, but of course we don't want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we have that third identity. We love you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works of Jesus. And so we're in the middle of this series right now, it's like a little mini-series, in the book of Ephesians, where we're learning about this issue of being saved by grace through faith. And last week, Paul beat us up pretty good. He actually wore us out about being dead in our sin because that's the condition that we find ourselves in. Why are we dead to God? Well, that graphic over there on that wall shows us who God is. He's sovereign and he's good. And in his goodness, he's perfectly holy. He's the author of truth and he simply can't be in the presence of sin. And so we've used this sin spiral up here behind me to kind of get a sense for the condition that we find ourselves in, that green straight line, that is the straight edge of truth, representing God's focus on truth. And as we sin or as we have these trespasses in our lives, we miss the mark of truth and we spin further and further away, separating us as we follow after the things of this world, as we studied last week, as we follow after the things of the devil and the demons that are always prosecuting evil in our lives. And it's also a result of those passions of our flesh, those things inside of us, that sinful condition we have that causes us to miss out on those desires God gave us, like hungering and, and thirsting and, and thriving and being attractive. And we pervert those things. We, we distort them in ways that cause us to focus on ourselves instead of focusing on God. And that leads us to this descriptor that Paul gives us, that we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the condition we find ourselves in, dead in our sin, lifeless, separated from the God who created us. So what do we try to do then? Well, we try to fix it. 
And no matter how we slice it, we simply can't fix our condition on our own. The world tries its best, just a little bit more self-help. If we have some more knowledge, maybe some more information, some better technology, we can get rid of things such as pandemics and wars, right? We can eradicate all those challenges in our lives. But as we look around here on July 17th, 2022, we haven't made much progress as a world on these matters. And then the Christians get involved and they say, if everybody would just live out the Sermon on the Mount, it would fix everything, because then we just wouldn't be angry anymore. We wouldn't lust after things. We'd turn the other cheek whenever we could. But here's the thing. Even if the whole world lived out the Sermon on the Mount, it still wouldn't change us because inherently we have this condition. It's because we're sinners that we sin. So we just can't put in and practice the Sermon on the Mount. There's only one hope, and it's found in the first two words of our text today but God. So this is the third in our string of conjunctions. Two weeks ago, we started our text with an and. Last week, we started our text with another and. And then this week, we start our text with a but. And any time we see a but as a conjunction, we know that serves as a really important contrast for us. Man is dead, but God made him alive again. God rescues man. He saves man. And remember, Paul is showing us what's going on behind the scenes of world events, such as wars, natural disasters, inflation. It's God's master plan at work in our everyday, ordinary lives as we raise our children, as we pay our bills, as we care for our parents, to make alive again those whom God chose to adopt before the foundation of the world. So the church's message of hope is really simple. We're all dead, we're all condemned, but God. When all hope is lost, the one who created us also saves us. And Paul goes on to qualify this conjunction but even further. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And this is the totality of the gospel message in a single line. It's all centered around this contrast, that we're dead outside of Christ, and we are alive in Christ. This is a profound truth that has at least two key insights that we must appreciate today. First, God did it for us and to us, all on his own. And we're going to cover so much more of this next week. But the short of it is simply that it's nothing we did. There's no striving, no works, no profession of faith, no merit to warrant our salvation. It's all God. Any actions on our part are simply our response to all that God has done for us and to us. Second, it's not something that will happen to us in the future. It's something that's already happened to us. And what's that something? God made us alive together with Christ. Now, Paul predates us by some 2,000 years, and he's still writing in the past tense. So this thing has already happened. And it happened when God sent his son to bear the wrath of our sin that we learned about last week. God, by his nature, cannot let sin off the hook. 
It's not like he can say, I know you've sinned and we'll just forget about it. He simply can't do that. It must be punished. So he sent Jesus to bear our punishment. That's the whole point of the crucifixion. It's a horrifying punishment. But that's just how God feels about sin. And that's why Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus had actually become our sin. And he was experiencing God's wrath against sin on the cross. The punishment was so severe that it killed him. But God then raised him from the dead, made him alive again, just like he raises us from the dead. God made us alive together with Christ. So it's already happened. But for whom? The saints. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, the very people to whom Paul is writing this letter. That's what happens at that red drop up there of blood that we see on that graphic. We refer to it all the time. When we place our faith in Christ, we are justified, made right in a single moment by Christ's blood, born again into a new life in Christ, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, as we learned a few weeks back who indwells us and walks with us hand in hand down that well-lighted narrow path, convicting, counseling, comforting us with this truth that God made us alive together with Christ. And although we didn't get a new body, we didn't get a new mind, we didn't get a new physical heart, we did get a new spirit within us, a spirit that testifies to the truth that we have been made alive in Christ. Because we have a new spirit, the totality of our lives, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our souls, they have been transformed by God's resurrection power. So we were once blind, dead in our sin, now we see the truth that we're made alive together with Christ. Now some of you are saying, he keeps saying this over and over again, because it's so important that we burn this in the canvas of our hearts, that we understand that we've been made alive together with Christ. It's so vitally important that we understand the implications of this truth, because there's so many professing Christians out there who approach their faith outside of it, and so they've missed this vital point. You see, they take their profession of faith, they get baptized, and they do all that because they don't want to go to hell, and that's very reasonable. And they immediately start doing things to try to clean up their act, to be good enough to be accepted into heaven. But do you see that this truth here shows us how it's all a bunch of nonsense? It's a worldly view of religion. None of us are good enough. We're all dumpster fires because we are sinners who give in to the desires of our flesh. And so we all deserve punishment, eternal destruction, what waits for us at the end of that dark, wide path up there, burning in the lake of fire for all of eternity. But God, he saves us. All on his own, all we bring to the salvation effort is our sin. That's it. That's all we contribute to it. And that's why Paul starts out with our sin. That's why he beat us up so badly last week. We simply must grasp and own the depth of it. It's a necessary first step before we can truly appreciate the magnitude of God's gift of making us alive in Christ. It's one of the fundamental problems with the church today. 
It fails to preach sin. And it does that because whenever we preach sin, it hurts people's feelings and they don't want to come back. But when we fail to preach it, we miss the contrast. It's why we have so many professing Christians running around trying to be good enough to get into heaven. They think it's on them to do something by either believing or behaving in a way that God might approve of. But we see here it only happens because God is rich in mercy and because God has great love for us. That's it. God already did it for us and to us, all out of His rich mercy and His great love, period. Now, this is a truth that should provide for us a tremendous source of joy, hope, and peace. But the problem is, it's kind of unsettling because we really want to do something. We want to earn our salvation. It's wired in us. And so we sit there and we're like, well, wait a second. So this is just all God? I got nothing in this? Well, there's more to it. Got to keep coming back. But yeah, that's the basics of it. God loves us so much that He saves us. And then Paul summarizes it with a phrase that many of us have memorized over the years. By grace, you have been saved, which simply means that God's unmerited favor causes our sins to be forgiven. Next week, we're going to spend the entire time on this topic because Paul just elaborates this in just tremendous detail. So I'm very excited about it. But today we're just going to pass by it because we really need to focus on this next part. Check this out. Paul says that God has also raised us up with him. And this is a remarkable statement for a few reasons. First, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also what made us alive and raised us up with Christ. Just think about the kind of power it took to raise Jesus, who'd been crucified and died, behind a big rock in a tomb, to raise him to life again. As humans, we sit in awe of earthly power. Like we think about some of the biggest powerful things that we've seen on earth, like an, an atomic or nuclear bomb that explodes. A lot of power there. Or if we see a hurricane approaching and we see the devastation of a hurricane or a tidal wave. But here's the thing. All those things can do is destroy and kill. None of them can provide new life. That only happens by the Creator. It's only something that happens whenever the Creator and Sustainer of the universe breathes life into something. God the Father raised His Son from death to life, just like He raised us from our death in sin to our life in Christ. And second, we can't help but take note of the fact that Paul is still writing in the past tense. He is reaffirming the important point that it has already happened. Not only have we been made alive, we've also been raised up with Him. It's not something we're working our way toward. We are already joined to Christ by His work, not ours. You see, being made alive and raised with Christ or joined to Christ or being in Christ, as we've been talking, is not something we end up with. Rather, it's something that we begin with. Our new life in Christ begins with being raised up with Him, being in Him. It happens the moment we respond to the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and calling us to repentance. When we place our faith in Christ, 
We are raised with Him, meaning we are joined with Him. And that's the reason God sent His Son down to earth in the form of man. Fully God, fully man, joined together. It was part of God's plan set forth before the beginning of time that God would be joined with us. And Christ is the very embodiment of God and man being raised and joined together. It's what makes us Christian. So if we're among the saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, then we've also already been raised up with Him. But not only have we been made alive and raised up with Him, we've also been seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now what are the heavenly places? Well, this phrase in Scripture is used both in a physical and in a spiritual sense. So in a physical sense, there are three levels of heaven. The first level of heaven we see in Scripture is the atmosphere. It's where where weather happens, right? So we kind of see clouds. That's like the first level of heaven when we see that in Scripture. The second level of heaven is the cosmos, where the moon, the stars, the galaxies operate. And then the third level of heaven is where God dwells. And the reference here to this particular word is the place where God dwells. Now, in a spiritual sense, the phrase heavenly places is from the word eperineus, which is the sphere of spiritual activity. It refers to both angelic and demonic activity. And as humans, we have little understanding of the spiritual world. We can't see it, we can't hear it, we don't really touch it, but the Bible speaks repeatedly about it. And perhaps one of the most striking examples we find in Scripture is in 2 Kings 6. And you'll recall, Elisha and his servant are in the city of Dothan, and they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And the Syrian army has been given orders to take this guy out, this guy Elisha. And the servant's freaking out. He's like, what are we going to do? It's over. And then Elisha just pauses very calmly, and he prays to God that God would open his servant's eyes. And when his servant's eyes are opened, he looks around at the hills, and all of God's angel armies are surrounding them. And of course, as we all know, Elisha prays to God, walks right out in between his enemy as they're blinded, and then he leads them somewhere else so that they can't mess with the nation Israel. And the key is this. While the spiritual world is unseen, it is active, and it impacts every single one of us. So being seated with Christ in the heavenly places means we have access to that third level of heaven where God dwells. And that's not in a realized eschatological way. That's a big fancy word. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, Some people believe that, you know, when we, because heaven is being God's presence, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're little heavens running around. And we're not saying that. Um, It doesn't mean we're fully in heaven now, of course, but it does mean we have access to it all in a very spiritual sense, in a first fruits kind of way. It's that foretaste of heaven that we often sing about in our songs. We've heard some of the sounds of heaven. We've caught whiffs of the smells of heaven. We've seen glimpses of the light. Or as one of my closest mentors used to say, We saw some God winks. He winked at us to assure us of that inheritance that we're promised. So what does that mean for us in a practical sense? Well, a couple of things, actually five to be specific. First, it means that we as Christians 
no longer belong to this world. We belong to God's kingdom. We aren't going to belong. We already belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as such, our spirits are focused on God and His heavenly realm. In other words, as Christians, we desire the things of heaven. And so we pray, we read scripture, we commune with God. We'll still be tripped up by the things of the world, but we don't find satisfaction in them anymore. They're described by C.S. Lewis as mud pies in our lives. We long for something more, for God's presence, for that holiday at sea. And so when we stumble in our sin, we immediately repent. We confess our failings. We recommit ourselves in humble obedience. We thirst, we hunger, we ache for the kingdom. We're no longer brought down by the things of the world. Our whole outlook on life becomes radiant with hope. We no longer obsess about what everyone else is doing or what others think of us because we're no longer controlled by the things of this world. That's why we feel so out of place sometimes as Christians. It's because we're not made for this place. God is shaping us for His kingdom. We're just pilgrims sojourning through this life, already seated with Christ in Him in the heavenly places. Second, and because we're no longer of this world, Satan has lost his control over us. That's what happens when we preach the Word and people believe. Satan loses power. We know this because when Paul explains to King Agrippa what Jesus had commissioned him to do, he said he was sent to do the following, to open eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that's what happens when the gospel of Jesus is shared. People turn from the power of Satan to God's power. And that's what happens whenever we all respond to our commission, just like Paul did. When we live out those pillars we keep talking about in our everyday, ordinary lives. So when people ask you, what's going on at Four Mile Church? Oh, they're up to this new program. They got these pillar things running out. It's not a new church initiative. It's extremely powerful stuff, and it's rooted in Scripture. Third, we're no longer under the wrath of God. This is great news. Those who are still dead are doomed to eternal destruction, that wide, dark path you see over there. But as Christians, we're taken out of that. We're on that narrow path that leads to God's kingdom, already passed from judgment to life. So there's no fear on judgment day. Fourth, God's presence is within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit makes us heavenly-minded. You've probably heard that tragic quote before. This person has become so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly use. It's really bad theology because we're actually become very heavenly-minded because that is where our citizenship resides. God's presence is with us when we are in Christ, who is seated at God's right hand interceding for us. So just think about what that means for us. It means we have direct access to the King, to the Creator and Stator of the entire universe. Fifth. This is a done deal because we are seated with Christ. We sit when something is completed. Christ is resting in victory because His work is done. His sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath. So those who are in Christ are eternally safe, 
and therefore can and must begin to enjoy his rest now. If you look back across these five points, ask yourself, are you rejoicing in humble praise because of this truth? Or are you still trying to make yourself a Christian, still dead in your trespasses and sins? Because being a Christian is not a burden at all. It's freedom. Sin no longer has its hold on us. God's grace holds us now. And we all need to start living like that. And that's exactly how Paul concludes today. He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Appreciating God's immeasurable riches is so important because it takes our minds off of our temporary suffering that we face. And this is always true. Big things overtake small things in our lives. If we've hurt our foot and we're kind of limping around, right, moving our way to the, to the parking lot, and then all of a sudden someone says, bear, right? Someone sees a bear on the other side of the parking lot. All of a sudden you forget about that little foot problem. <laughs> you take off, right? Bigger things always overtake the small things. In the same way, when we grasp the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness, the petty things in our lives, they go away. We begin to get over ourselves. And that's really our biggest problem in life. Whenever we're beating ourselves up over whatever's going on, it's typically because we just can't seem to get over ourselves. But when we're in Christ, we stop worrying about our place in this world because we see our place in heaven. Paul is showing us a glimpse of God's greatness here, and he uses this wonderful word, kindness, to do it. I love that word. We wouldn't have been able to see God's kindness because of our sin, but when we see both our sin and our Savior, we catch a glimpse of God's kindness and the immeasurable riches of His grace towards those who are in Christ Jesus. We've used this graphic before a couple of times because I think it's so important for us to grasp what happens when we appreciate God's immeasurable grace. On line one up there, you see a little blue bar, and that represents the first time we experience God's grace. And then as we proceed down through the second line and the third line, we get a little more grace and we realize how much more there is that white bar. We didn't even realize how much was out there. And with each additional provision of grace we receive, we learn how much more to the point where we stand on that, four, on that bottom line there, in that blue square, and we look back on our lives, and we can't begin to even see the start of it all. And we look forward in our lives, and we can't see the end of it. And we realize that we are standing in God's immeasurable grace. It's so vitally important that we grasp it, because He puts it on display by doing it for us in us, with us, and through us, because we're all part of His great plan. And then He uses what He does in us to show others the riches of His grace and His kindness. That's God's master plan. We're being prepared to be shown off in the coming ages. That's what sanctification is all about, being made Christ-like. And that's exactly what the pillars are all about, reflecting Christ's love and grace to others in our everyday, ordinary lives. We just grab one of these pillars and we just start applying it. If we're in pillar number 11 up there, we just start encouraging everyone we see. And then we grab another pillar and we start doing that. 
In fact, our serve pillar has been added again today, preparing another gift of grace for you as you leave. Um, you remember last week you got a cookie, and I reminded you that you didn't do anything to deserve that cookie. You didn't deserve anything this week either to receive it. Didn't do anything. But it's there because we want you to receive God's grace, giving you something you don't deserve. And this week is even better than the cookie last week because it's so important that we begin to grasp the immensity of God's grace and then reflect it to others. This is powerful stuff. It's truly a matter of life and death, and that is not an overstatement in any way, shape, or form. It has cosmic and eternal implications. We were dead in our trespasses, but God, by His amazing grace, has made us alive in Christ, raised us up in Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Almighty, all-knowing, ever-present, merciful, loving, and kind God, we thank you for the immeasurable riches of your grace that you've lavished upon us, that you would send your Son to bear the punishment of our sin, raising us up with him and seating us with him in the heavenly places is more than we can ever begin to take in. We need your help to grasp this all so that we might get over ourselves, get our heads up, and live on our commission to go forth and make disciples as part of your master plan to unite all things in Christ. We praise your mighty name, Jesus, and we thank you for this word today. Amen. So for our response time today, let's just all take a few minutes talking with God about this amazing gift that he's offered us.